Welcome to Advancing Word with Dr. T.D. Stubblefield. In chapter 55 of Isaiah, verse 11, God tells the prophet, So will my word be which goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Standing on this promise, T.D. Stubblefield Ministries is committed to sharing biblical principles with individuals, families, churches, communities, and our world, believing that only the Word of God can advance us in God's perfect plan for our lives, where we can experience liberating faith, lasting hope, and unconditional love in a relationship with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is Dr. T.D. Stubblefield with today's Advancing Word. Yeah. 
Over the past few weeks, we have been dealing with so much hurt. We've been dealing with so much pain and suffering as families have gone through crises of illness and the separation of death. And I found myself in so many situations trying to offer encouragement. Many times the primary encouragement is just the ministry of presence. We get in a whole lot of trouble when we start talking and trying to explain people's problems away. There are times that we just have to sit where they sit and by our presence affirm that we do care. But often God chooses not to tell us why he lets what happens in our lives happen. And so we have to trust him. It's easy to trust him when everything is going good. But when he turns the lights out and carries us through difficult and dark valleys, that's when not only is our faith tested, but that's when our faith grows stronger. And some of us are in those valleys right now. Some of us are searching for light right now. And I'm praying what we share with you today will encourage your heart. I want to preach for just a little while from the subject, the God who weeps with us. The God who weeps with us. The one verse we did not read was verse 35. It is the shortest verse in the Bible. It says Jesus wept. The God who weeps with us, it's, it's important that we have pocketed this message in the fourth gospel. It is at one and the same time the most loftiest of the gospels and yet the lowliest of the gospels. If new Christians ask me where to start reading in their Bible study, I would tell them Psalms and Proverbs in the Old Testament and the Gospel of John in the New. One wise person said that this gospel is so shallow and simplistic that a child can wade through it without drowning. And yet it is so deep and profound that an elephant can swim in it and not capsize. It is both lofty and lowly. What begins in the marvelous prologue, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God and the same was in the beginning with God and then goes on to say, and this Word was made flesh moves to the only place in the Gospels, the four Gospels, where we see Jesus crying. In fact, he's weeping. You know, there's something happening because even before we get to Jesus weeping in the 11th chapter, we see him weary in the 4th chapter. For he must needs go through Samaria and he sat down by a well and just think about the significance of the statement that he was wearied from his journey. A 
commits those kinds of statements, it gives hue and color to scriptures like Hebrews that says, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. We move further in the gospel to Jesus crying out from the cross. As he gives up the spirit, he says it is finished. So what begins in the lofty throne room of glory ends in the throes of Calvary. In the Gospel of John, Jesus leaves calling cards. He leaves calling cards to authenticate his ministry. And not just his ministry, the focus of John's Gospel is the deity of Christ. That he is the Son of God who is with God eternally in the beginning. And quite significantly, because there are seven of them, there are seven calling cards, the first one being he turns water into wine. He heals a nobleman's son is the second calling card. He heals a cripple by a pool called Bethesda. The fourth card which is a card in all four Gospels, is a feeding of 5,000 men, not counting women and children. But John gives it a special flavor. The fifth calling card is he tranquilizes a stormy sea. The sixth card is the healing of a man born blind from birth. And then the seventh card, when he proclaims, I am... And he is so many things. But here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the quintessence of divine revelation. He's the brightest star, I often say, in the constellation, the galaxy of revelation. God in these last days those folks sitting around in some desert place on some high hill waiting for some other revelation, there's no other. For he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And when he had by himself purged our sins, upholding all things by his power, he sat down at the right hand of God. And in this passage before us, he weeps in context of everything else taking place in the gospel. We must assume that his crying, his weeping, his manifest sorrow at this point in his ministry is not something outside of the nature of God. It's not something peripheral to or extraneous from the nature of God. It is a part of who God is. For he is the God who weeps with us. And so as this text, as it toyed with me, tickled, tantalized me, and teased me, I began to ask some questions of it. If in Jesus Christ God weeps with us, how is that true? What can we learn from his interlude, his 
interaction with this beloved family who was dear to him, what can we learn about God's position, God's place when we're going through? What does it teach us about suffering? Not only generally, but suffering in the particular axis of those of us who are children of God. Because the truth of the matter is, some of us think because we're in the church and read our Bible daily and have committed our lives to the Lord that somehow we get a pass. We get an exemption. We get, we get to clap out of suffering. But you can't clap out of suffering. In fact, quite peculiarly, what the word tells us is our attitude should be counted all joy when we fall into divers temptation for the trying of our faith, work of patience. James would suggest that there are some things we learn about ourselves and about God when we go through, when we have our struggles, when we shed our tears, when we endure our pain. When I ask the text the question, in what way does God weep with us? What relevance does his weeping with Mary and Martha and Lazarus have for us? There are some points that emerged. The first point is he weeps with us in the reality of painful paradox. God weeps with us in the reality of painful paradox. If we read too quickly, we'll miss it. In verse 3 of the text, there's a paradoxical statement. There's a statement that at face value disturbs and disrupts us because there's an absurdity to it. There's a contradiction to it. There's a disconnection between what philosophers would say is the thesis and the antithesis. It's a part of the message that the sisters sent to the Lord when their brother was gravely ill. The one whom thou loveth is sick. The one whom thou loveth is sick. Those who preach the prosperity gospel have no category to pocket that kind of statement because so often what is posed is if you're going through something, it must be your faith is not strong enough. But in the reality of painful paradox, God shows up and cries with us. The sheer magnitude of the suffering around us and in the world places us in a difficult position sometimes when we affirm that a good God created this world and looked at everything that he made and said, not only is it good, but it's very good. That's one of the primary arguments that atheists use as to why they reject the Christian faith is how could a good God create a world with so much suffering? And if you insist that he's a good God, he must not be powerful. He must not be all powerful. Otherwise, he would take the suffering away. And if you insist he's all powerful, he must not be all good because he doesn't take it away. But we have even a greater paradox in this passage because it says the one whom 
You love. And nobody can love us like God. Nobody can hold us like God. Nobody can embrace us like God. The one whom you love is sick. You mean God lets those who love him and who he loves hurt? The one whom you love is sick. It's a paradox. But we have other paradoxical statements in the Gospel of John. For instance, he says in this passage, he says, this sickness is not unto death. Just as we were wrestling with how the one whom he loved is sick, he says, this sickness is not unto death. But hear me, he says, but unto the glory of God. God can use our hurt. God can use our suffering. God can use our pain for his glory. He breaches the subject in John chapter 9 when his disciples dealing with evil and dealing with suffering confronts a blind man and said, who sinned? This man or his parents that he should be born blind. They were positioning that sin and evil has some transgenerational focus. But Jesus said, neither did he nor his parents but that the works of God, the works of God might be made manifest in him. For I must work the works of him that sent me while this day, night comes. When no man can work, when we deal with our pain and our suffering and we struggle with the paradox, we need to remember when we're God's children, if he has not moved it, if he has not minimized it, the only reason you're still dealing with it is because it's for his glory. God is not trying to make us comfortable. He's not. Some of us want a comfortable religion. He's not trying to make us comfortable. He's trying to conform us to the image of his son. It's amazing how out of our suffering something redemptive can come. Often when we're going through, we don't feel it. We don't sense God is there weeping with us. But no tragedy is so traumatic that God cannot redeem from the suffering. That's what the cross is all about. It gets no worse than Jesus, the Son of God, dying on a cross. But after Good Friday, think about the paradox of that. The church did not call it Bad Friday. They called it Good Friday. Because early Sunday morning, the one who died on Friday got up with all power in his hands. And that's why it's in the pain that God amplifies our response. As a part of preparation for this message, I read again much of C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain. If you really want to read something special, it's a classic, The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts to us in our pain. Because pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Some of us wouldn't shout if it wasn't for the pain. Some of us wouldn't pray 
If it wasn't for the pain, some of us wouldn't come to church. If it wasn't for the pain. You know you are dealing with this paradox when you get to the point you can sing, if I never had, if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve him. I wouldn't know what faith in God could do. You have Paul, Paul praying. He says, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know the power of your resurrection and I want to experience the fellowship of your suffering because it's in the fellowship of his suffering that we experience the fellowship of his sufficiency. What he's done for others, he will. He can do for you. God weeps with us in the paradox of our pain. He can use pain to bless us. The first point is he weeps with us in the reality of painful paradox. You have been listening to Advancing Word with Dr. T.D. Stubblefield. We pray that you have been encouraged with what your ears have heard and your hearts have felt. Explore our website at tdstubblefield.org for more information about us and to obtain resources provided by T.D. Stubblefield Ministries. Until next time, be blessed and remember to stop stressing and start stepping, advancing in faith, hope, and love by reading and applying the Word of God so you can stand on certain truth for uncertain times.